Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code POLITICAL. And by the University of California, committed to advancing our world through discovery. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 15th, 2015, the I don't mean to yell at you, but I feel good doing it edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins me from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. I'm so happy you picked one of the titles I proposed, brought to us by Seymour Hirsch, who we will be talking about shortly. And then from New York today is John Dickerson of Slate and Face the Nation of CBS. Hello, John. Hello, David and Emily. How does that microphone smell, John? It doesn't smell so much as it envelops your head in an entire kind of other person's body. So it's really, it's an olfactory oh, sensation that's going on here. If only we could podcast smell. How great that oh, would we, that be. We, by the time we reach our 20th year, we will be smell casting for sure. Oh, that would be awesome. We're going to be like the original smell casters. Yeah. I don't think we would be good smellcasters because, first of all, this studio is very close. And so by the end of yeah. every episode, I'm a little bit fragrant. Well, you know what, though? We could, in fact, have a smellcast. In fact, people could just, like, open a jar of peanut butter and have it sit next to them as they listen to it. Although the people who go running, that might be a little Why difficult. peanut butter? I don't know. It was the first thing that came to mind uh, do you I think that's thinking. the smell that represents the Do you eat peanut butter? No, I'm just, oh my God, I'm under, I love peanut butter. I'm under prosecution for admitting to, Nothing, to owning peanut butter. Nothing, but do you regularly eat it? Uh, yeah, a lot. Like I in do the morning too. on a waffle. I have a peanut butter and sriracha sandwiches or peanut butter and jalapeno sandwiches often if I'm by, my, by myself. You know, it, it's. It, I know that time travel has not been um, discovered yet, but if you eat a peanut butter and sriracha sandwich, you immediately get transported through a portal to Brooklyn. Are you done? Are you done? Can we do the show now? Do you think now? anyone is still listening? No. I doubt it. On this week's GabFest, did the Obama administration, the Pakistani government, the Saudis, the special forces, Ayman al-Zawahari, the New Yorker magazine, the cast of Sesame Street, the guy who lives down the street from you and always puts the trash out wearing only his underwear, did they all conspire to concoct a fake story about the killing of Osama bin Laden? That's what we heard this week that they did. Then the GOP and Barack Obama get really upset with Democrats about the TPA bill involving the TPP, or maybe it's a TPP bill involving the TPA. We'll sort it out. It's about trade, just for the less alphabet soup aware among us. 
And then did Jeb Bush really just say that nonsense about Iraq? Yes, he did. We'll talk about that nonsense. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we'll talk about the Amtrak crash and the state of American transportation. Before we get started, a quick plug for a live show that our friends at Mom and Dad are fighting, our great Slate parenting podcast are doing. They're doing a live show in North Carolina on June 7th at MotorCo in Durham. Allison Bendick, Dan Coyce, they are really smart, really funny, really clever. They've got a great special guest, uh, Mac McCon of the band Super Chunk, which is a band that I feel like John Dickerson. That's probably a John Dickerson style band. Were you a Super Chunk fan, John? I'm not a fan. I don't know their I don't know their work. Um, and that's but many people have said you would be a, a Super Chunk fan, and then I've said, oh, I got to check them out. I think then, all of us. I think the three of us are kind of ten years older than the Super Chunk. That Super Chunk skews about ten years younger than us. Anyway, Mac will talk about Indie Rock Dadhood, his new album, and he will also perform live as there is a live show of Mom and Dad are Fighting with Allison Bendict and Dan Coyce. If you're that Slate, sounds so fun. It does. Slate Plus members get a 30% discount on their ticket purchase. So you can go see them at MotorCo in Durham, North Carolina, Sunday, June 7th. For tickets, go to slate.com slash live, Or maybe it's Mom and Dad Live. In a long article for the London Review of Books, Seymour... Cy Hirsch contends that the public story about Osama bin Laden's capture and killing is a Lewis Carroll fabrication, a complete conspiracy implicating just about anyone you could possibly think of, in which the Pakistanis sheltered and held bin Laden for years, that they were funded by the Saudis to do that, partnered with uh, us in some fashion to take him down in a totally stage-managed raid, which did not produce any intelligence and did not happen in the way that it was described to us. This story is based on anonymous and sketchy or anonymous sources. Who knows if they're sketchy, but totally anonymous sources. It's caused a furor. Uh, I don't want to tip my hand here, but the story seems like complete bullshit to me. (laughs) (laughs) I read that and felt pained because Seymour Hirsch is for many of us, a hero. He broke the story of the Mille massacre in Vietnam in the 60s. He broke the story of the abuses by American soldiers in Iraq at Abu Ghraib prison. And I can't believe that he fell for this like crazy, internally contradictory kind of fantasy that um, somebody who he trusts spun him. That said, I think there is like a possibility that there is one or two interesting facts that could be true in the whole yarn. John, what about you? What do you think? Your point of sadness explains why people are paying attention to this, which is that um, that Cy Hirsch has such an amazing track record. Well, I guess he has two kinds of track records, but he has the those are famous stories for a reason. They were amazing acts of uh of investigative journalism, and he has turned more recently to a more kind of conspiracy-minded. And this has always been super fascinating to me because – so I guess I'm trying to explain why we're talking about this because there were there are plenty of crazy-ass things written uh, that we've never paid any attention to because they're crazy, as this one is, almost on its face, and we just blow right by them. But because of his standing, it's what creates more interest and why the White House had to respond and the administration had to respond. But I've always been interested in the – We've all known investigative journalists who are amazing in their tenacity and fixation on facts, but they all, or all the ones I've known anyway, have 
you know, a forest for the trees problem. And that's what editors are for. I mean, we all have that when we write. But but the investigative journalists I've known, what makes them so great is their absolute obsession with new detail. And that sometimes, you know, leads them down these crazy paths. There's like the line between genius and madness. And uh, I've always felt like investigative journalists are the ones who are closest to that line in our profession. You know, I would say something slightly different, which is that this piece and also reading about the way in which Cy Hirsch has been writing about the civil war in Syria, blaming the rebels there for using chemical weapons without what looks like any real credible proof. And actually, if you go back to his reporting on Dick Cheney and George W. Bush and how they were like right about to, you know, shoot nuclear warheads at Iran, which turned out not to be true, that looks shaky as well. And I feel like the theme here has to do with conspiracy theories and how willing you are to entertain them and then really push them. My own limited experience of whistleblowing sources is that there are two kinds of them. There are the ones who come to you sort of more in sorrow than in anger, seem a little bit hesitant, and then tell you things that are disturbing that you can confirm and they help you confirm them. And then there are people who come to you and they talk and talk and talk and they say things you can't even understand you don't have the context or they'll send you like reams of documents and if what they were saying were true it might be a big deal but you can't understand it and they can't get out of their own conspiracy theory and their own like forest through the trees problem to explain it and I have to say I become allergic to people like that when they get in touch with me and I feel like Cy Hirsch must like attract them and like gather them to him and then run with their most wild claims. I, You know, it's funny. So as I sat down to think about this, I was thinking about the House of Cards versus Veep dichotomy that I think we've talked about, which is that House of Cards imagines a Washington where conspiracy theories are rife and where it's possible to pull them off and people are competent and Veep imagines a world in which actually all politicians are incompetent and nothing ever happens according to any kind of plan. And I was thinking, oh, there's no conspiracy theory. People who believe in conspiracy theories are just such – it's so much nonsense. It's ridiculous. You know, you have to stay away from them. It's you, you end up down a rabbit hole. But then I started to think back and I realized, well, there actually have been this series of conspiracy theories in American politics over the past 50 years, which have been quite large and involved. Watergate. Watergate and Iran-Contra and the false Iraq intelligence, three that I could think of without too much difficulty. Abu Ghraib now, is wait, a good example. You- you... Abu Ghraib is different. Abu Ghraib is yeah, different. Yeah, and I feel like the Iraq stuff is slightly different too. Iraq, I don't think is different because Iraq, Iraq, they didn't set out for it to be conspiracy theory, but the but but it is true that there was there was a stovepiping of intelligence and a cherry picking of it and a sort of a, attempt to to, right. to cultivate sources who would give tell them the story that they wanted. That feels more like fooling themselves than than say Watergate, which was they knew there was a break in and they did everything they could to. You know, covered up, right? But they and Abu Ghraib is not a conspiracy. I think that's Abu Ghraib is not a conspiracy. Abu Ghraib. Well, the cover up was a conspiracy. Well, the cover up was just a cover up. That's just a thing that you did. Was that well, cover ups are by nature conspiracies. They are people getting together and telling a different story or figuring out how not to say anything. When absolutely it was something something which where people discovered that there's something really that they didn't want to happen it happened and they're like oh shit how do we cover this up rather than in the case of Iran Contra or Watergate where they affirm or in this or in this description of Osama bin Laden where you affirmatively go out and scheme things together the the level of 
I think that's a, the perfect distinction. I, the level of competency and cross-governmental seamless coordination in this story, including the fact that two you know, Pakistani military leaders were in on, the, in on this fake raid that was created, it boggles the mind. I mean, in other words, if people could be this coordinated and seamlessly in sync, Imagine how many things actually would happen. In other words, this is just an, it's a implausible level of cooperation for human behavior, let alone the specifics of this case. People just don't like they don't work this seamlessly. Stuff leaks out. So did you guys think any bits of it could be true, were true? I mean, yes, Pakistan is a country. Well, I would go one step further. I think there is some corroborating evidence that somebody in the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence service, knew where Osama bin Laden was. That yeah, seems like kind of obvious. Lots of people have but reported that before. And it that. seems possible yeah. that some ISI officer walked into the CIA headquarters in Islamabad, Abbottabad, I can't remember. I guess Islamabad, and said something about bin Laden. I don't believe that this is where we found out his whereabouts and that the whole story of um, interrogating his courier is made up. But the idea that we got some actionable intelligence from someone at ISI, I would believe that. And I could see why we wouldn't, yeah. why the government, we. I'm identifying with the government why the government wouldn't share that information because it would blow that person's cover, which I believe now has been blown by one of the Pakistani publications. Yeah. The walk-in, you mean? Yeah, that guy. But I don't think the idea that the walk-in is how we found the whereabouts. I mean, NBC News at first seemed to confirm that fact from Hirsch's article, and then they essentially retracted it without saying that was what they were doing, which is another sort of irritating moment of – bad journalism practice and all of this. The walk-in, yes, and Carlotta Gall, the New York Times reporter, also has said that she believes there was a walk-in. Right, and she had So should we explain to people what the walk-in is? The, the idea of the walk-in was that there was a an ISI, a Pakistani intelligence official, who came perhaps trying to get some of the huge bin Laden reward, who came to the CIA and told them something about bin Laden's whereabouts. And the implication you draw from that is that, oh, indeed, some part of the Pakistani intelligence apparatus knew something about bin Laden's whereabouts. But we just don't have any idea of, A, what was told, B, whether what was told uh, was, in fact, bin Laden's whereabouts, C, whether what was told was that the ISI affirmatively knew and had been sheltering him. I mean, there's so many unknowns in this, in this so many gaps. It's been reported in a few places that there was a walk-in, but that uh, the information from the walk-in wasn't. It didn't lead you right to bin Laden. There was a, exactly. So in other words, the walk-in part is true, or not true, but the walk-in part is in both versions of the story, Hirsch and the consensus other view. But that's about where the similarities disappear. So, and the, sorry, so is no. there a larger lesson here? I mean, it's a relief to me that Hirsch had to go abroad to the London Review of Books to publish this story. I mean, I don't think it says good things about the London Review, but, you know, at least – the New Yorker, or the Washington Post, whoever else he went to in this country, ostensibly turned it down. Um, what else do we say about this? I mean, is this just one of those embarrassing episodes where someone who has just had past enormous glory gets attention for a really embarrassing misstep and then we just sort of all like shrug and look away? I think it's a great question. Can I, because I don't have an answer to it, ask <laughs> Change a second the question? subject? Maybe David no. has an answer. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, David. 
No, ask your second question. My second question is, imagine this is George Bush. It's uh, in the middle of the Iraq war, and somebody came in with this with a f- similar story. Don't you think it would have gotten a lot further in the non-London Review of Books press? Yes. You mean, it ha- had it George Bush been the person who'd gotten Bin Laden assassinated? Yeah. Yeah. Would the American left be like, oh, yeah, clearly the story that, that the Bush administration has told? However, I would say, John, that one reason why that story might have gotten somewhere is that that there was this exceptionally poor history, poor record in the Bush administration about lying about what they were doing in the war. And the fact that they had gone to war in Iraq with such such shoddy intelligence means that there was a huge amount of predisposition to. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure the, the Obama administration is lying about lots of things and that, that they're playing us on lots of things, but there isn't that huge strike against it the way there was against the Bush administration. But I agree. I think you're right. But you make a great point. Not only can you be sure the Obama administration is lying, they did on this individual story. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff that kind of didn't check out or the story changed. But what's striking about the Hirsch piece is just as a piece of writing, just like when you have such a fantastical tale and it's basically hinges on two anonymous sources who weren't directly involved in the process – it just is a, sort of like the Rolling Stone article. You don't even need to know – you don't need to know much. It just doesn't hang together as a piece of writing, as a piece of as – as a math equation. It is like the Rolling Stone article. So let, let's turn just in closing because there was such a wonderful thing in Slate yesterday, which is that oh Isaac Chotner – Oh, my God. That was Isaac my Chotner, thing ever for a while. Isaac Chotner, who's a, a reporter, got Hirsch on the phone. And anyone who's ever gotten Cy Hirsch on the phone, which I have done once – uh, knows knows what the, that it is not a pleasant experience. So Isaac Chotner got Cy Hirsch on the phone and interviewed him about the story. And Slate published the transcript of this interview. And I hope we'll release the audio of this interview because Hirsch is just so unbelievably profane, vicious, sneering, funny, condescending, asshole, asshole, like like dickish <laughs> in a way that it, that you can't. Imagine I've spoke to him once on the phone. I can't I wish I was trying to remember last night what it was. It was some other During story. During the Kennedy, when his Kennedy book Maybe came it out? was about the Kennedy book, but it was some other thing where it was something I was calling him a, and it was a, it was about how he worked or about something about a story he had done. And it was asking some of the same questions. And I was on the phone with him for maybe 10 minutes. And he was so, such an asshole. It was unbelievable. And you have to read it to get a full sense of it. But my God, he is so unpleasant. Is that is that a personality type that that any woman could get away with? Well, I mean, someone asked that question or about the quality of the work on Twitter. And I saw somebody else. I think it was Jody Rosen respond. Well, what about Judith Miller? I don't know if she has quite this unpleasant a personality. I've never met her. But the the level of falling for a false conspiracy theory is up there. Actually, you know what? There is a there is a uh, investigative reporter I know who's a woman who who has, who shall be nameless who shall be nameless who has some of this, but is also really fun, which I don't think that Hirsch is. He did not seem fun in that interview. He seemed like a cranky old crank. Do we excuse that? Is that like an okay thing to be? Is it because it brings so much entertainment? To me, what it what it pro- mostly showed was. This guy is impossible to fact check. This guy would just be absolutely impossible to fact check because it's everything's a fight with him. He's not going to be trying to to help you out if you were if you were checking something out that he'd done. It would just be a war. Right. He would bristle over every single challenge. 
I don't think it's excusable. I'd also see, I, I don't know. Do you think you could get away with acting like that now if you were young and on the way up? Or do you only get to be that big of a jerk when you're already someone who has people have reason to respect at least some aspects of your record? I don't know. That's why I like the idea of it being genius and madness. I mean, in other words, you need all of this stuff to be able to go up against an entire military complex, which he's done twice. You know, you need to be tough and assholic and sometimes totally wrong in your wild But utterly self-assured, because but otherwise utterly self-assured. you would just So these yourself. are all crucial qualities. That's why editors are, you know, more praise for editors, because they're the ones who have to decide, you know... He's just got it. He's gone. This is it's going overboard here. I mean, there are fact checkers, too. I mean, God, fact checkers do such important work. I mean, not if you make it impossible for them to do their jobs, but they're the ones who come in and say, like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I mean, it really seems like, well, I don't understand. I don't understand how any publication actually hit send on this piece in their publishing platform. It's the London Review. Call the London Review. So let's leave it there. Don't go read the London Review story. It's not really worth your time, but definitely go read the interview with Hirsch in Slate, which is the best the best 15 minutes you'll spend today. Our first sponsor this week is Stamps.com. Most of us are trying to find more time every day to get things done. You cannot let trips to the post office slow you down. And you don't have to now, thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package. You'll never waste time going to the post office again because you can do everything right from your desk with Stamps.com. Print the postage you need, put it on your letter or package, then just hand it off to your mail carrier and you're done. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. All right. Take it like a nine-minute break if you want at this moment. You can go ahead and take a nine-minute break. Come back in. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think that's what it is, TPP, is a so far secret trade pact among 11 Pacific Rim nations, although not China, that would lower— well, Most importantly, not China. Not most importantly, not China. It would lower tariffs, secure intellectual property, perhaps improve working standards in developing nations. President Obama has been negotiating this pact for years. He wants to have a chance to put the TPP to Congress for a straight up and down vote with no amendments. To do this, he needs something called Trade Promotion Authority, TPA. TPA, not TPP. TPA is something which has been on the books for a while. It's, it's, it's kind of too bad that we're in toilet paper acronym land in all of this. I wish it were OPP. That might be the only thing that I have to say about this topic, by the way. So TPA is something that has existed. It, it, it kind of exists. It, it does exist. It's a, it allows there to be a straight up and down vote on certain kinds of uh, treaties like this one. And this week, the Democrats who are skeptical of a lot of things involving free trade because they think it harms organized labor. It it has environmental implications that you can cause environmental damage in other countries, that it maybe promotes sweatshops in other countries. Democrats revolted against a vote that would have expanded TPA. In the, in the Senate, they voted against this with all but one Democrat opposing the continuation of TPA and demanding that the president include some 
extra provisions in this bill involving about Chinese currency manipulation. What's interesting about this, and it may be nothing may be interesting about this, but what's interesting about this is this is a situation where you know, the president aligned very strongly with the entire Republican Party, Republican Party in Congress, against the majority of Democrats. So, John, where did that come from? Are Democrats really against this bill that's coming? Not all Democrats are against it. There were about 10 senators, maybe even a few more, who believe there are enough protections in here for the environment and workers that um, you get all the benefits that they believe of free trade, which is opening up markets for U.S. goods. And also there's a strategic benefit here, which is that if the U.S. wants to have leverage in Asia, that it wants to have business ties with all these leverage in Asia against China. It wants to have business ties and relationship with lots of Asian countries and that this allows those business ties to be firmer and stronger and that if your economic interests are aligned in the region, then your incentives are aligned in the security sphere. And so, you know, the U.S. worried about a growing China wants to be able to uh, have those relationships all cinched up and, and tied up as best they can. Right. I mean, Obama has a good line on this. He says better basically for us to write the rules of trade than for China to write them. And yet I was reading an op-ed by my congresswoman Rosa DeLauro and Elizabeth Warren pointing out that we don't know what the actual deal itself says yet and that many of the people who have been drafting the provisions of it come from big corporations and may not, you know, have the interests of workers or the environment actually at heart. And they gave an example that at least – I guess they have some reason to think that there is a provision here that would move a lot of dispute resolution toward mandatory secret binding arbitration and away from other public courts and forums. That's been something that in the United States, the Consumer Finance Protection Board has been pushing back against. There's legislation trying to have the effect of reversing some Supreme Court decisions. Anyway, it just sounded suspicious. And then I started wondering if maybe all the president's men and women are excited about this because there's a lot of momentum behind it. And then they're losing track of what the details of it are. And then like, who knows? Cause we don't know what it says. Well, well, this is the problem, both it's interesting rhetorically the way these two have been conflated, but what what you're saying is in part true. But so trade promotion authority or what used to be called fast track is the thing that the president wants in order to actually make these deals because as trade people involved in the making of these trade deals have have said repeatedly, you can't negotiate with a country and say, we'll give you this if you give us that if the deal then can be totally rewritten by Congress. People who support a, wrong, uh, a role for a strong Congress say, yeah, well, that's our job. Our job is to represent the people. And if the people's interests are being ruined by these trade deals, then we should be able to fix them. So the arguments against TPA, when Elizabeth Warren says TPP is going to be terrible, it's the Trans-Pacific Partnership really doesn't have anything to do with trade promotion authority. But she worries that if the president is given trade promotion authority, then once the Trans-Pacific Partnership is put before Congress, because the up or down vote is such a blunt instrument, the forces of free trade will over will override everyone else. And, and that any of the concerns she may have, people will say, well, our only instrument here is an up or down vote, and this isn't enough to kill this whole thing. So we're going to have to go ahead with it. So that's the connection between the two. TPA has this thing called pre-commitment, which exists in game theory and human behavior, which is the idea that you bind yourself. 
you limit the number of choices you can have in the world. And that by limiting the number of choices, you actually are able to perhaps more effectively get things done. And it's a very, if you believe that the goal of most activities is to more efficiently do them, then it's really, pre-commitment's a really good method to help you do things because it, it takes away choice. It takes away the, the delays that choice imposes on you. And, and paralysis. Uh, and so we, it pre, we've done this with base closing. So for years, as the government tried to close military bases, it's nearly impossible to close a military base if, if each individual military base gets voted on because every military base has a congressman who just says, I, you know, you can't do this. I'm going to block you at every turn. You can't, I can't, we can't have this vote to screw me. But if you do something where all the bases are considered all at once and you can only vote yes or no on it, then it becomes a much easier situation. You can get it through. And, and I think TPA and fast track is a thing for a non-functioning legislature. It's actually a, probably a very valuable thing to have. And it is really the only thing that, that it prevents a trade bill from getting totally hijacked by special interests. And if Democrats don't like it, like they should vote against it. If they don't believe in it, if they think it's going to cause harm to, to their constituents, then vote against it. That seems pretty, pretty simple. Like it, it's not that hard to cast a vote against this. In fact, it's, in a way, it's hard to be, cast a vote for free trade these days. It's, a, it's not. But that, a, isn't that exactly what's happening is they are casting votes against it. Right, but not enough. No, they're casting votes they're against slowing it. it down. You mean they're casting votes against TPA, but they're not casting see, votes against the treaty. I see. You want them to cast a vote against the pact itself, yeah. as opposed to the president getting fast track authority. Yeah, or filibuster the pact. I mean, Democrats don't have the votes, but they have enough votes to filibuster. They could prevent a prevent a vote on fast track if they really believe this is a bad bill. But I don't think they do. I think there's a minority of of members of Congress who think this is bad, and the vast majority think this is a, probably a good thing, and they should. So it's it's uh, the bill. Should it is go an forward. awful lot of trust the executive on the global stage, though. Right. I mean, we're used to that notion that we have to be represented by one person, one office when when that were the United States and we have all these other countries we're dealing with. And also, it's not a surprise that the United States wouldn't get everything it wants out of a trade deal with all these other countries which have different interests. And yet. I don't know. Usually the paralysis and sclerotic nature of Congress drives me and everyone insane. But the idea that you're going to take all of that checking, not all of it, but that you're going to diminish it to such a degree by presenting Congress with essentially a done deal, it makes me nervous. Do you really think it would be more effective to allow Congress to to barter and trade over every tiny provision, which of course they couldn't because you can't, because if Congress modifies the treaty, they, you then have to go back to the other 10 nations and get the other 10 nations to agree to whatever modifications have happened. No, anyway. I think it would be absolutely less effective. I just wonder if I want what effective is going to get for us. I, I And partly this may be that I don't understand enough about what's actually in this deal and the effects it would have to really know the answer, given that there's no text that we can go and read or that other people can analyze for us. Right. Yeah. It is. The weird part is the total secretiveness of it, that you have this 800-page treaty, which you can apparently, if you're a senator, you can go access it, but not take any notes and not, then not come and talk about it. Yeah, that is... Um, yeah, what is up with that? I mean, some people would say it's trying to hoodwink them, but then again, they're given access to it. It's These trade deals are incredibly difficult to put together between all the various different countries. They're hard enough on their own. And so if you opened it up to, you know, every blogger, tweeter and Facebook person in the world, it would just you'd lose 
you just lose control of of the because. But isn't there going to be some sixty day period in which we do all get to read yeah. it, or is it? Yeah, just but then the, the vote, but then the bluntness of the vote is supposed to kind of correct for. I mean, it's supposed to basically say we can't adjudicate. I mean, I guess it's, maybe it's like any contract is like this, which is you know we can't relitigate every tiny little piece of this. If there is a huge flaw in it. Then that will Someone be a big enough it. flaw to kill the whole deal, but only huge flaws because the rest of it is like the imperfect imbalance of a, a contract where you've got to trust basically the guy that on on balance after everything nets out, it'll be beneficial. And also, by the way, individual constituencies like you know there's some manufacturing areas that are not going to do well, but other areas will blossom because of the the trip markets that open. So that's the theory anyway. So let's close this on the Hillary question. She has been coy about how she stands on all of this stuff. Can she be a free trader as the Democratic nominee for president? Is that a, is that a position she can hold or does she have to be skeptical of all such treaties? I think she has to be what she's been, which is vague, skeptical, but not a unreconstructed person. So she has to sort of be in favor of trade, but be worried about trade. She's changed her tune on on NAFTA. She's made NAFTA seem like a thing that kind of passed in the night or something, as opposed to a deal that her husband fought adamantly for and clashed with his party 10 times more of a clash than Obama has had. And which has proved with seriously flawed, right? Right. And which, from well, or I should say from the point of view, jobs. yeah, there are a lot of people who feel like NAFTA was not a good deal. And so... But losing manufacturing jobs does not necessarily mean it wasn't right, right. a good deal. Well, that's why, I, that's why I was trying to clarify my response to Emily. Yeah, I mean, the argument is you lose some manufacturing jobs, but you gain other jobs. Now, there's a big debate about whether the gain was as big as the loss and so forth and so on. Whatever the truth of the matter is, it's certainly an un... There's a, there's a lot of debate over whether... It was good or not. And that uh, that amount of debate is sufficiently makes it sufficiently difficult for any candidate. And so she's trying to basically have it both ways. And because she's not she has no challenger, really, in the on the Democratic side, she's being allowed to. I mean, she's not going to suffer any penalty for this. All right. We will move on from TPP and TPA and BPA and EPA and the MPA. The GabFest is also brought to you this week by Harry's.com, which provides super, super, super sh- shaving at a reasonable price. I am a Harry's user, very happy with my orange-handled razor and my blades, which are strangely long-lasting. They're so long-lasting. Harry's, the razors are, in a way, almost too good because they last for a really long time. I've been just taking my beard down with this razor for an exceptionally long time with a, the same blade. But shaving is incredibly expensive. If you go to the drugstore, you stack up on razors and a new handle and one that vibrates and getting the gel and all this stuff, it just costs a tremendous amount of money. And Harry's has made a cheaper and superior way to get a great shave. They bought a blade factory in Germany that crafts some of the world's highest quality blades and they cut out the middleman. So you're buying directly from them, from the manufacturer. And they have a starter set for just $15, which includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel, which is what I use. And as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with our code POLITICAL 
After using our code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. And shipping is always free. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our code POLITICAL with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter coupon code POLITICAL at checkout for $5 off the starter set. And start shaving smarter today. So last week, we talked about Jade Helm, which was a, a crazy conspiracy theory about the U.S. military. So this week, I give you Jeb Bush, who's, I would say, arguably in Jade Helm land. He went into Jade Helm land this week. When he told Fox's Megyn Kelly that knowing what we know now, he would have invaded Iraq. It's a position that I think is held only by John Bolton and Dick Cheney. Not even his brother, President Bush, George W. Bush. You know, if only Jeb had read his brother's book, he could have saved himself all this trouble. Jeb frantically retreated from his position, sort of like the Iraqi army. But uh, poorly he retreated. Well, yeah, poorly. But when it became clear how appalled everyone was by his his answer. And he claimed he misunderstood the question and, and thought it was about whether he would have invaded at the time with the intelligence he had. Which actually reading – I haven't watched it. I've only read the transcript. And reading the transcript, it is – I think he could have misunderstood the question. I think it is oh, totally – if you knew what we know now. I know. But no, I know, no. But it's you, clear when he says – the way he responds is he said, I would. And Hillary Clinton would have too. It's clear that he's like many politicians and much like his brother – he thinks he knows what the question is before it's asked or before it's finished. And so he doesn't listen. And, he, I mean, he was right. He answered quickly. And then he gave his traditional thing, although he did bring in Hillary Clinton. But, I mean, by saying Hillary Clinton believed the same thing, that was what made it clear that he was doing a weird right. splicing. He was, re- he was referring to actually what people thought at the time with the information. Yeah, okay. So let's give him – that's fine. So but what do we make of all of this? He's – can't figure out how to talk coherently about this war because it's his brother's war? Well, no, but but if you assume that he misspoke, then he's just given the standard F7 answer on this, which is... No, well, he... I don't he know. Took, but it took him two bites to get to the F7 answer because... And by the way, is F7 the common term for the save get key is what you're talking about? F7 right? is just have like a, a funk... It's just the routine function key. The macro yeah, that the macro. gives you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I'm just saying because it's a perfect... I used to call it the save get key, but uh, that would have been on like a Wang supercomputer, not like I just want to know what the colloquialism is because I'd like to use it until it uh, gets wrong of all meaning. Um, he then came out the second time on Sean Hannity's show, which is often where one goes to kind of do these kind of cleanups. And he basically then didn't answer the underlying question. The underlying question was, if you know, if you knew then what you know now, would you have authorized the invasion? And the answer that all of his opponents were giving was, no, I wouldn't have authorized it. If there were no WMD of significant size, I wouldn't have authorized it. He didn't say that. He said, well, there were a lot of mistakes and how would I – there were a lot of mistakes like there are in a lot of things in life. And I don't know what I would have done. That was both vague and not – Lancing the boil. Then on Thursday in Arizona, Bush said the sentence that all of his opponents. Oh, and then he called it a hypothetical, which is as if to dismiss it. But then Thursday, he took care of it and said, had I known, you know, I wouldn't have authorized it given what we know now. So he finally got there on the third answer. What's funny, he was trying so hard not to basically show that he believed that his brother's war was a mistake that he I don't know. He didn't think through the he didn't think this through. This is the most obvious question that was going to come to him in the course of his entire campaign. What do you think about this war? And oh, by the way, it's the mo- it's the question every candidate on the left and the right 
needs to answer. It's the biggest invasion the U.S. has launched since the Vietnam War. Hillary Clinton authorized this war. Like, there's a lot of things that people should talk about and ask questions about on this. This should this isn't some gotcha. But it's also uh, it's, just, it's also so easy. It's such it yeah. has such an easy answer. The easy answer is we wouldn't we shouldn't have. On the other hand, President Obama has managed it badly, and his mismanagement has allowed the creation of ISIS. And that's an easy answer yeah. if you're a Republican. And for all those reasons, I feel like the way that you can understand this is through the lens of sibling rivalry and competition and loyalty, right? That he must, his judgment is clouded. He must, in that moment where he missed what Megyn Kelly was saying, have had some rush of emotions about being asked about his brother's biggest failure, essentially. And here he is, the older brother running for president after the dad and the younger brother. The whole thing is so overloaded with these kind of family tensions and ancient questions about how siblings relate to each other. I feel like that's the only way it makes any sense that he blew and it. By the so way, Jeb, is, Jeb isn't the older brother. Oh, all right. The younger brother. It is so Forget funny that. that everyone always he thinks he, everyone thinks he's the older brother. It's weird because he seems <laughs> older. He seems more mature somehow. But I think I think you're right. I think the the brother thing, it's just so weird. But I think the brother thing, he just wants to be done with. He also thinks the question is all about his brother. So that he he said in his answer to Megyn Kelly and has said in lots of um, other interviews, when asked about Iraq, he immediately sorts it as an effort to sow filial discord. And so he says, you know what? And I think there were mistakes. And you know who thinks the same thing is George W. Bush. In other words, this sneaky attempt to try and find distance between me and my brother isn't going to work. And that's not as opposed you know, to I'm a presidential candidate. And as you said, all of us candidates have to answer and reckon with this recent invasion and huge war. Right. And what it says about a whole host of things. I mean, who cares whether you're a conservative or a liberal? You should have a fully formed view about the Iraq war. I mean, it's just like if for no other reason than history repeats itself, but also because candidates use vague terms. I mean, the reason we should want this is candidates are be, use these really vague terms to talk about foreign policy. And the conclusions you draw about the past are the best way we can get a view inside someone's foreign, you know, how they think about foreign policy and the relationship between countries and U.S. power and so forth. But for all this familial stuff that you guys both cited, I kind of feel like this is the big one. This is the only – he's done it. He's not, he's had a terrible, awkward moment. But there actually aren't a lot of other huge George W. Bush anvils hanging over his head. Iraq was the big one. He messed it up, but it's he's got – he messed it up early. He'll recover from that. There aren't a lot of other gigantic – Trying to privatize Social Security? Nah, no one – nah. No one cares? No one cares. And he can, well, he and can he take whatever position on that he wants. It won't matter. Yeah, I mean he can just say – yeah, he can get around that. Yeah, I mean Katrina. He can't. I mean, he can't be held responsible for Katrina. No one's going to talk about it anyway. Katrina doesn't go to what you would do as a president. I mean, that's the as a sort of good government, good campaigns matter. What you don't want is this to get dragged into a like being all about the brother, because it should be all about what your thinking is about this war. What you would have done in a similar situation is a way to tell us something about the way you think the world works and the way you would make decisions and the way you want to have U.S. power spread throughout the world. What's worrisome is that this will go away as a topic of conversation because Republicans are united in not really wanting to talk about the Bush years that much. When they talk about foreign policy, it's often about, you know, Ronald Reagan and his strength against the Soviet Union and how that 
resorted the world. And Hillary Clinton is perfectly happy to not talk about this because it exposes the fact that she was wrong. She said she was wrong about her vote to authorize. But also, uh, and Peter Beinert wrote a great piece about this, the question is not whether she was right or wrong in her vote, but what kind of homework did she do leading up to the vote? Or did she just kind of get in the stream of, of conventional thought at the time, which was there were a lot of Democratic hawks, uh, or I guess you'd say Democratic supporters of the war in Iraq. And so was she just kind of bubbling along in that stream, or did she come to her view after a careful consideration of the evidence? Does this whole week of bad Bush week, does it matter? Does it mean that Bush isn't going to be the candidate, or is it just going to blow away? I mean, this was a bungling, and it was on maybe a special kind of case, like he could handle most other things. I think this goes away. I don't think... Um, I don't Republicans aren't going to try and use this issue somehow. I mean, they'll say, boy, he really screwed up that answer and that they'll whisper that. But they won't in a debate. They won't turn to him and say, you know, raise some big issue about the Iraq war. So I think it actually totally goes away. It's just been a bad news cycle for three days. Well, but also it it goes to the issue of how much of a juggernaut is he? And I think it it probably for those people who are skeptical of Bush, it probably confirms the the belief that we need to have some other viable candidates out there because this guy is not so strong and so good that he's going to run the table. So, so it it, ju- it just weakens his sense of inevitability, and in that that is probably the, the strongest thing he has going for him is the sense of inevitability. Yeah, I think that's a good point, David. I think it's a even though I think you could make a very very good case that this is a special case, like the war and his brother. This is a special fumble because it's got such complexity for him. And so it really tells us nothing about his ability to handle the pressures of a campaign or the office. But nobody's going to make that case. <laughs> I mean, people are going to sort this as a like a fumble. And but maybe he's just not that good a candidate. And, and that goes to that goes right to your point. The GAFETS is brought to you today by the University of California, committed to creating opportunity through knowledge. 42% of UC undergraduates, more than 78,000 students, will be among the first in their families to earn a college degree. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The University of California, the power of public. And now for today's featured research. The food service industry is notoriously hard on workers, in part because the federal minimum wage is just $2.13 for people who earn tips. Those rock-bottom earnings obviously cause financial hardship, but they also serve up a climate in which waitresses tolerate customer harassment just to eke out a living. Over the last few years, Saro Jaramayan, director of the Food Labor Research Center at University of California at Berkeley, has gone up against the National Restaurant Association to abolish the tipped minimum wage. Now, after years of work, her efforts appear to be paying off. Lawmakers in seven states, including Washington, D.C., have introduced legislation to end it. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're hanging with your brother, having a beer with your brother. But if your brother's George W. Bush, you're not having a beer with him because he doesn't drink, right? So if you're not having a beer with your brother. You're uh, having a non-alcoholic beer. That doesn't really, I, I don't think that's a, if you say I'm having a beer with somebody and it's a non-alcoholic beer, you're not really having a beer with them. You're definitely not having a cocktail with them. You can't have a non-alcoholic cocktail. So therefore, George W. Bush cannot chatter at all. <laughs> uh, but what will you be chattering about, John? Uh, I will be chattering about the fact that um, on this day, this very day, 
of taping anyway, May 14th, uh, 1789, Congress officially adopted the title President of the United States. But there was a great deal of debate about this question and what they would call George Washington, who had been referred to mostly before that as Your Excellency or simply General. Uh, John Adams, who had been, you know, enamored with the European courts, had said basically, you know, there's a brand new country. You wanted a title that had some swagger to it, you know. So he suggested Your Highness or Your Most Behind uh, or Your Most Benign Highness. I guess Your Most Behind Highness would have been for somebody else. They suggested calling him His Exalted Highness, His Elective Highness, Most Illustrious and Excellent President is one of my favorite. George uh, Washington himself uh, wanted to be called... His High Mightiness, the President of the United States, and Protector of Their Liberties. Are you ever going to have a chatter again that's not some chestnut of American history? I don't know. Maybe so not. so beats all those poll ones he used to do, right? I'm so <laughs> yeah. I'm into these chestnuts. I want hoary old chestnuts. Emily, what is your chatter? This week is the 30th anniversary of a really sad episode in Philadelphia history where um, a group of, what should we call them, I guess, black radicals um, in Philadelphia, the MOVE group, got into a long-running, awful confrontation with with their neighbors on Osage Avenue and then also with the Philadelphia police. And it ended with this catastrophic decision to drop a bomb on the house that a group of move folks were living in with their children. I think 11 people died in the ensuing fire. An entire block in Philadelphia burned down. And essentially that block has never recovered. Um, I remember this really well watching it on TV. My dad was... um, working in like a volunteer capacity at the time for Wilson Good, who was Philadelphia's black mayor. And it was just an incredibly scarring moment for for the city. Um, And there's a really good documentary, which I may have talked about on the show before, called Let the Fire Burn, that goes back to this piece of Philadelphia history. And I'm not sure exactly how it connects to the current conversation we're having about the police and their... And Black Lives Matter and, you know, how police misconduct can really affect neighborhoods and inner city and African-American communities. It's a little tricky because the move people were absolutely driving the middle class black neighbors crazy on Osage Avenue by, you know, all kinds of like just weird behavior, loudspeakers and all manner of things. So it's not fair to just see this as a clash between um, completely faultless, blameless people and the police. But there's something about the level of overreaction about the police, I suppose, which I think probably does connect up. And anyway, if you are interested in this, I really recommend this documentary, Let the Fire Burn. I, you know, it's I, ever since I think you have talked about it before on the show because I have it on my list of things to watch. And I've Oh, really? Oh, good. I keep meaning to do that. And now you're going to now you've instigated. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. My chatter is about. (laughs) Oh, man. It's about a dude who just did something that really shouldn't do. And then Disney's going to make a movie about him. It's an American guy, guy from Virginia, very successful, wealthy man named Jeremiah Heaton, who traveled to Sudan. And he put up a flag in an area, relatively uninhabited area. He put up a flag and declared the kingdom of North Sudan so that his daughter could be a princess. So his daughter could be the princess of North Sudan. And there's something just so wrong, given a history of 
European colonialism or white colonialism in Africa, our own history with Native Americans. There's something what so wrong. What about the wrong. fact that Sudan is like completely it's a, it's a, war it's a, torn and dangerous, and also right now. that it is a nation which has it also is a nation which has its own borders and like that it's its of own course. kingdom. It's, you can't just declare a kingdom within Sudan any more than you could do it within within uh, Connecticut. It was 800 square miles. He declared a kingdom That's of 800 big. square miles. That's a gigantic area. Now that Disney is making a movie about this guy. Oh, that's so gross. Uh, called The Princess of North Sudan. And Ugh. Disney is just Disney is just getting a walloped on social media deservedly for this. And the screenwriter is, is very defensive and saying, oh, it's not going to be like that at all. And um, Oh, my God. Surely this movie needs to be canceled. Yeah. That the, that the first African princess that Disney will ever make a movie about is some white girl from Virginia whose dad, <laughs> dad staked a claim to hundreds of square miles of Sudan. Anyway, it's just such a tone-deaf move. I mean, whatever. We all do things for our children, and we all do things, stupid things for our children. But No, we don't all do this that. Is, this one is a little, bit, a little bit much. Don't go see that movie. Do not go see The King of North Sudan. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Show page, Slate.com slash GabFest has links to what we've talked about today. And our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. You can subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Thank you all to folks who wrote me about Obscura Day. And please keep writing me, David at AtlasObscura.com. If you want to know what to do, some awesome thing to do on May 30th, I'm happy to tell you. There are lots of you who have written to me. I would love to hear from you because we're, we're doing these 150 events, and I'd love to see you there. For Emily Basil and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Tanner Colby, co-host with Baratunde Thurston and Raquel Cepeda of our national conversation about conversations about race. Join us this week as we talk about the recent unrest in Baltimore. We'll talk about how the media covers it, what should be said about it, and how we should frame these events. We'll talk about why Native American men and women, Hispanic men and women, and black women have not been included in the discussion about violence at the hands of the police. And finally, we'll look at a new economic study on the impact of neighborhoods on social mobility and how that relates to events in Baltimore. You can hear all that and more on our national conversation about conversations about race on the Panoply Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.